This evening, our passage is Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18 is the uh, passages we will cover, although I'm going to read verse 13 for the sake of introducing us to where we were. So please stand for the reading of God's word, Luke 16, beginning at verse 13. Hear now the living and abiding word of God. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. This is the word of God. Amen. You may be seated. Let us go to the Lord in prayer now. Heavenly Father, we come asking that you would give us insight by the illumination of the Spirit of God, that the words of Christ spoken some 2,000 years ago would speak with force, with relevance, with application to our hearts this evening, that we would receive the word, that it would do a refining work within us, that it would produce faith in our hearts, it would produce repentance, it would produce obedience. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, as we return this evening to this uh, short section in Luke 16, we come to a very important matter that our Lord gives to us. We might be tempted to focus on the parable at the beginning of the chapter and the parable at the end of the chapter and not give sufficient attention to what's in between, but we need to give attention to what we find here. And the reason it's so important is that our Lord tells us that it is possible that we can be highly respected among others, we could be considered upstanding people, righteous people before God, while at the same time our heart is an abomination in the sight of the Lord. That's a sobering possibility, isn't it? To think that you could be considered to be very righteous in the sight of others, to be considered perhaps you know, amongst the very best church members there are, and yet it be possible that your heart is an abomination in the sight of God. This is a very sobering possibility that we could have our hearts to be tombs with dead men's bones, which Jesus said of the Pharisees, because they have not, these hearts have not been cleansed by the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. Now, if we are those who believe in God, and if we are those who believe that God knows all things, then above all, we should be concerned with what God thinks about us, not what others think about us. Now, granted, there are the Proverbs that talk about a good name is a, is a very great value. We should have a good reputation, of course. In fact, elders are required to have a, a good reputation with outsiders. 
So we're not casting all of that aside, but what we are saying is that it is of the utmost importance that our hearts are cleansed in the sight of God. That is what our Lord brings to our attention as he focuses upon the covetous hearts of the Pharisees. Now what we are going to give our attention to is this short chunk, which is following the parable of the unjust steward. If you remember that parable that we focused on last Sunday, our Lord was telling us that we should make eternal friends by means of a a righteous use of the wealth that he gives us. We are to not take these things of this world and use them for ourselves, but we are to bless others. We are to seek the kingdom of God with the resources we have. And that's where we come in with verse 14, with the Pharisees' response to the teaching of Christ. And in verse 13, which we read, Jesus says, You can't serve God and mammon. You're either going to love the one or you're going to love the other. It's not possible to do both. And the Pharisees mocked Jesus when he said that. Isn't that amazing? These scholars of the law mocked Jesus when he said that? And so in light of that, Jesus is going to remind them of what the law and the prophets said, that this is no new teaching that Jesus was bringing to them. The law and the prophets had already testified, you shall have no other gods before me. And the law and the prophets had testified, you are to give of yourself for the poor. You are to care for those in need. This was already set forth. And that is why in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, as we call it, at the very end of the parable, the focus will be on the testimony of the law and the prophets. Just reading to you verses 29 through 31 of that parable that will come and we will study next week. Abraham speaking to the rich man says, Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rise from the dead. The resurrection of Christ, even, had been, of course, ignored, as we will find out later in the Gospels. The Pharisees paid money to cover it up. They didn't receive it. They didn't hear it even then. And so the emphasis given in the parable to the rich man who did not repent of his covetousness was, the law and the prophets already told you what you needed to do. Didn't you read Micah 6.8? He has told you, O man, what is good, but to... Love, love justice, to walk humbly, to, to love mercy. These were the, the priorities of the law and the prophets, and they had ignored them. And so the, the Lord brings a very serious, very sober warning to the Pharisees, which we need to receive with sobriety for ourselves. And so we're going to hit three key topics this evening. The first is that our Lord exposes the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and their real heart condition. He shows them what is in their hearts that it was an abomination in the sight of God. Secondly, our Lord reminds the Pharisees of the urgency of the time. So he talks about how the law and the prophets testified until John, but now with John the Baptist and now with Jesus Christ here on the scene, the kingdom of God was coming and time was short. The axe was laid to the root of the tree. They needed to respond to the word, the preaching of the gospel. So he's going to remind them of the urgency of the times. And then thirdly, our Lord will give us a selected example of something that the law and the prophets testified to, and it will actually be about the topic of divorce and remarriage. 
And it may seem a little random as to why Jesus does that, but we will consider why it is relevant that he brought that up right there in verse 18. So those are the topics. Now let's go to verse 14 to begin with. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. This is a very serious thing, brothers and sisters. The incarnate Son of God is setting forth the impossibility of having idols and serving the one true God, and he's speaking to the scholars of the law, the men that knew the Old Testament better than anybody else, and they mocked him. Does that amaze you, that that they would mock Jesus when he said something that should have been rather uncontroversial? You can't worship God and worship money. Is that controversial from the standpoint of what the Old Testament said? Did not the first commandment say, you shall have no other gods before me? This is like 101 for the law, right? But these men did not receive it that way. They mocked Jesus. They derided him. Literally, the Greek verb says they turned their noses up at him. It's actually a physical gesture of mockery. And when people gesture in certain ways, you should actually pay attention. It is indication often of what they're thinking. And they were mocking Jesus. Now these men, because they were lovers of money, did not want to receive the word. Their, their love of their idols had blinded them and had shut their ears from hearing the word of God with clarity. And in some way or another, they had tried to reconcile the first commandment with their love of money. Somehow they had worked that out. Sometimes we try to do the same thing. We try to find a way to bring our idols in and the law of God. And we say, these are, these are compatible. We're going to find a way to fit these together. And sometimes we know that our actions are not in harmony with God's law, but we tell conscience to pipe down, and we create various justifications for our rebellion, and that is what they were doing here. They mocked Jesus when he delivered them the word of God. Now, if we fear the living God, it should be a frightening thing to see when people mock the word of God. To mock what the true and living God says to us is evidence of a very corrupt heart, a rebellious heart. And it was because of their love of money. Their love of sin shut them off from being able to receive the word, to take it in. They would not humble themselves when called to this repentance. And you'll find that if someone is in love with their sin, any attempt to rebuke or correct them for it will not be well received. It won't go well until they repent of their love of their idols. As Proverbs says, when it comes to the scoffer, he who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself, and he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. And sometimes people mock at the word of God because they want to avoid any onset of the conviction of sin. They'll just cast off the exhortation. That's ridiculous. That's not me. You haven't, you haven't nailed the problem. Forget it. No, no, that's not me. But what if the word of God and that exhortation brought to you is just what you needed to hear? What if they nailed it? And that's exactly what you needed to hear and receive and consider and humbly submit to. 
And so may it be, brothers and sisters, when we hear the word of God, that we do not mock in any way the delivery of that word, but we take it in, we receive it with humility. Because we need it. We need that illuminating work of the word of God. Now Jesus goes on here in verse 15 to expose their hearts to them. In verse 15, they didn't like Jesus' parable about making friends for eternity through the wise use of riches in a godly manner. They were not interested in Jesus' instruction here. They didn't like that parable. And our Lord, always the fearless one, rebuked them plainly for their hearts which were known to God. And while to others in their time the Pharisees had justified themselves in various ways, they looked good before others. They loved the greetings in the marketplaces. They loved the places of honor. And they got a lot of it. People were very much uh, reverent to these religious leaders and what appeared to be their righteous actions. But here is what Jesus says to them. Verse 15. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. There was this religious system that had grown up in Israel whereby the Pharisees, as the spiritual guides, were so highly esteemed in their day. They were appreciated, they were revered, they were honored among the people. And of course, they had contributed to this edifice of man-made religion themselves. They had diminished the real spiritual import of God's law and the force of God's law that spoke to the hearts of the people. They uh, They had neglected the weightier matters. They had elevated the minor matters. They had found ways in which to make the externalistic and the attainable rituals what it was all about now. And if they were able to create this kind of system, it was actually not that hard to look good before others. Because it was so externalistic, it was quite attainable. To outward observers, you wouldn't find men more holy than these Pharisees. Fasting twice a week, check, they did that. Giving tithes of all that they possessed, check, we we know that. They were so fastidious about their tithing, we learned, that they took the anise and the cumin and the dill, and they they took these little garden, uh, these little household herbs, and they would weigh out the little pieces and make sure they tithed on even the most smallest produce of their plants. But then Jesus says, you've neglected justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You've spent so much time staring at your little plants and cutting up all the little pieces and weighing them out that you neglected justice. You were not merciful. You were not faith-filled. You were not acting in faithfulness. And here, they had spent so much time with their weighing out their garden herbs that they had missed the covetousness in their hearts. They had not dealt with the lust for worldly possessions. Yes, they would tithe, sure, that was fine. But to deal with the heart that was so gripped with greed, they didn't deal with it. Their ritualistic and externalistic applications really didn't have anything to to help them with that issue. And we learn from the Sermon on the Mount that many uh, of the people of Jesus' day, they had justified hatred for their neighbor with the lex talionis. They, they had said, well, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. I don't have to forgive people. I can get back at them. I can do vengeance. And here they're missing what the law of God said. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The law and the prophets testified to this. 
And so much of the Sermon on the Mount is just the Lord Jesus exposing unbiblical teaching about the law of God and then exposing the sinfulness of our hearts so that we will see our need for the cleansing grace of God. And so our Lord here in verse 15 teaches us the priority of the heart. No matter how much you or I justify ourselves before others, God always knows your heart. You cannot hide your anger, your lust, your covetousness, or your selfishness from the living God. He sees all. All things are naked, the Bible says, and open to him to whom we must give account. You're not going to get away from the piercing, penetrating eyes of the Lord, which are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, and not just in an externalistic way, but to the heart level. And so to apply this, brothers and sisters, you and I need to be the most concerned about our hearts. Not what others think about you. That, that's, that's not as important. That is so secondary here to what is in your heart. Now, how much people like you and how well they think of you does not necessarily give you an accurate window into your heart condition. There are many people who look good on the outside for quite a long time. Sometimes they are considered to be the most holy Christians you have ever known, but in time, the ugliness of the heart gets revealed in some way or another. Remember what our Lord spoke to the prophet Samuel? You remember when he was anointing the next king of Israel after the failure with Saul? And and, and Samuel was still, he was still thinking externalistically. He's thinking, where's the next tall guy? It's the wrong question. It's the wrong perspective. And so he goes to Jesse, he goes to his sons, they all pass before Samuel, and, and Samuel concludes, it's Eliab. He looks the part. What does the Lord say to him? Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, if the Lord is looking upon your heart, then that is what you are most concerned about in terms of the cleansing of the heart. You're not first thinking about, how can I make people think I am good? Wrong question. The question you are asking is, what is in my heart, and what do I need to ask God to cleanse my heart from? It's the heart of Psalm 139. Uh, there's the psalmist there, David, writing. He says, you know, cleanse me from hidden faults. Search me and know me and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's the desire that we bring to this kind of passage. We don't want our hearts to be an abomination before God. The word abomination is something that is repulsive and disgusting. That's what it means. It's not just a somewhat unrighteous heart. We are talking about a heart that is distasteful and disgusting and repulsive to Almighty God. And so when perhaps others praise us for something we've done or talk about how good we are, now sometimes, as I even said this morning, there can be good, godly affirmation that can be an encouragement to people. In fact, I would encourage us to do that more, to affirm one another in a God-centered way. Nevertheless, even when somebody does that for you, you need to know that they don't know your heart and you know your heart better than they do. Have you had that sometimes where somebody brings something to you and you're thinking, you don't, you don't really know what it's like. You don't really know my heart. You don't know how bad it is. 
And you're thankful when somebody sees some, some work of God's grace in you, but they don't know you like you know you, and you don't know yourself like God knows you. And so may it be that we who are the most aware, from a human standpoint, of our sinful condition should not become lifted up with pride by such encouragements, but rather have a sober understanding of our spiritual condition and our need for the grace of God. And so we move on here to the testimony of the law and the prophets, verses 16 through 17. Our Lord is reminding them about the urgency of their times, that they were ignoring God's word, and it was especially urgent that they would listen up. Verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Let me explain what I think our Lord means here and then make some application to us. When our Lord says that the law and the prophets were until John, he is saying that John is the culmination of the Old Covenant. John, as it were, stands between the the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Just like you can actually stand in two states if they have a border, like you can stand on the border of Colorado and Kansas, you could kind of be in both states at the same time, right? It's almost like that was the case for John the Baptist. He was, in a sense, an Old Covenant prophet, the last of the Old Covenant, but in another sense, he's almost right here on the cusp of the New Covenant. He's a transitional figure in the administration of God's saving grace. Now, what Jesus is bringing out to the Pharisees, what's relevant about this, is that they need to know that the kingdom has come. That's what John the Baptist was warning about. He says, I'm a forerunner. I'm baptizing you for repentance for the remission of sins. Be aware, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. He, this, the Messiah is coming. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He has a winnowing fork. He's going to divide the wheat from the chaff. There's going to be burning. Be prepared. That was a paraphrase of some of what John the Baptist said. And there was an urgency about all this. Time was limited. The axe was laid to the root of the tree. The idea was the axe was about to fall. It was right there. And so if an axe is sitting at your root and you're a tree, you should be concerned, right? You should think, I'm about to get cut down. That's what the Pharisees and all of God's people in that, that, that day were to remember and to be aware of. It was urgent. There was no time here to shrug off the message and say, we'll deal with that in 10 years. Jesus says in Luke 13, repent or you will all likewise perish. There's a number of times here we've seen in the Gospel of Luke where there's urgency. He says you need to discern the times. But Jesus did not want the Pharisees to misunderstand what he meant. Now when he says that the law and the prophets were until John, he did not want them to misunderstand that to mean the law of God is null and void. That would have been a mistake to think that with the coming of John and with the coming of Christ, that the law and the prophets were all done. That's why in Matthew 5 he says, don't think I've come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. And he says that the law of God is so inviolable, it is so unchangeable, that it is easier for the entire cosmos and the created order to dissolve than for a tittle of the law to fail. The word tittle, it refers to the very smallest stroke in the Hebrew alphabet. 
We have these little serif strokes that we write even with English characters, and that's how small it is. There's some Hebrew letters that if you don't have that little stroke, you won't be able to tell the letters apart. It's a very important feature of the alphabet. And Jesus is saying that is how inviolable the law of God is. That is how stable it is. It stands firm and sure in its testimony. And Jesus is bringing this up because the Pharisees are scoffing at God's word. They were not going to get away with ignoring the testimony of the law and the prophets. And it was all the more urgent. It was, of course, urgent when Isaiah delivered his message to the people of God, right? But it was even more urgent. The Messiah was here. He was bringing the kingdom of God to come. And now with this message of the gospel, there was this call to repent and believe the gospel and to be saved through the Messiah or to perish. And they needed to pay attention to the law and the prophets. The the law and the prophets had many important things to say about wealth and generosity and caring for the poor. But the Pharisees had, had ignored those passages and diminished them and they were focused elsewhere. Now listen to what Isaiah prophesied those hundreds of years before. We read this last week in Isaiah 58. And, and one of the things that the Pharisees had done and the people of God had done was to focus on these externals, like I said. And they would fast. They would have their fasting down uh, very ritualistically. And Isaiah says, the Lord says through Isaiah, the fast that I want is that you would do justice that you would show mercy to those that are in need. That's more important to me than you depriving yourself of food for twice a week. It would be that you care for those in need. Isaiah 58, verse 6. Is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out when you see the naked that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? This was the matter that was closest to the heart of God. This was what he was more concerned about. Yes, they could deprive themselves twice a week of eating. Fine, they could do that. But what if they did it while ignoring all of the most obvious needs that were before them? The law and the prophets had testified that what God wanted was when they see a person poorly clothed, that they would clothe them. Rather than walking by them while they're fasting and doing nothing, that's that's not, not what God wants. It was to let the oppressed go free, to undo heavy burdens, to break yokes, to stop acting wickedly, to lose the bonds of wickedness. Elsewhere in Isaiah 58 says, you, you fast and then you strike your brother with your fist. Does God want you doing that? You're fasting and you're fighting. Is that what fasting is supposed to show forth in terms of a spiritual demeanor of a broken and contrite heart? No, it's ridiculous. So all of this was already found in the Law and the Prophets. And, and Jesus is saying that the time is urgent The Law and the Prophets have already said this. Now the time is short. And when he says that the people are pressing into the kingdom, he's saying that it's it's sort of like the last helicopter out of Vietnam. We sometimes talk about that. You know, there's an urgent moment. And the idea is there is a window of time in which they could repent. And everybody was pressing into the kingdom. Thousands being baptized by John. They're saying, we are ready for this Messiah to come. But many didn't do that. They, they were not interested in this very critical moment. And so now our Lord, he brings up 
a particular testimony that the law and the prophets brought in verse 18, a reminder of what the law and the prophets had said. And this can seem a bit random, especially because we've been talking about covetousness and generosity and wealth, and suddenly Jesus throws in marriage, remarriage and divorce, and we're thinking, what does that have to do with this? And I I believe that the reason our Lord brings this up right here is because this perhaps was one of the key ways in which the people of God in that day were diminishing and disobeying the word of God. It was a key application. It was like a preacher who says, I'm going to bring up a key sin of this people and I'm going to focus on it because they need to hear this. They need to be rebuked for this. So verse 18, it says, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. It's very plain. This was important because in Jesus' day, the divorce practices in Israel had become so lawless. They were so far removed from what the word of God said in the law and the prophets concerning this matter. Much like in our day where there's this no-fault divorce and divorce is rampant, although I'm sure today it's probably far worse than then, this is the kind of thing that was happening in Israel. And there was a bias, especially in the time in Israel, a bias towards the husband's ability to divorce his wife. That's predominantly probably what would have been happening. For example, you, you can find some of the discussion of the Jewish rabbis, and they would discuss what are grounds for divorce. And as you read some of their uh, descriptions of these things, we're thinking that is utterly ridiculous biblical interpretation. But I don't think that that was their main concern. I think that they were trying to justify themselves in their lax, their lawless treatment of the law of God. For example, there's the Rabbi Hillel. He said that a husband could divorce his wife for as trivial of a matter as a wife spoiling the dinner. That could be a reason for divorcing your wife. Working off of what Deuteronomy had said, if you found something indecent in your wife, I guess indecent there, according to him, would mean she spoiled the dinner. And then you have Rabbi Akiba. He went further. He said, if, if you find somebody prettier than your wife, you can divorce your current wife. Now, if that is not fleshly and so ridiculous in light of the law of God, I, I don't know what else to present as an example of the lawlessness concerning this matter. So Jesus' words then are quite relevant if this is the kinds of discussions that are going on in Jesus' day, the utter lawlessness of the people of God just breaking the seventh commandment flagrantly by divorcing and then remarrying and committing adultery in the process. And so Jesus is rebuking the lawlessness of that day. And by doing so, he's protecting, of course, vulnerable women from such ungodly mistreatment by fleshly men trying to appease themselves, satisfy themselves. Now you'll notice, of course, in verse 18, this particular uh, account in Luke is different than the way Matthew recounts similar words in his gospel. And you'll notice that in verse 18 here in Luke, there's no exception even for sexual immorality. Now, I do not believe that Jesus was not providing an exception. I think we bring verse 18 into harmony with the whole of his teaching, of course. But it's worth considering, why didn't he share the exception right here? And here's my suggestion as to why maybe Jesus did not provide the exception at this point. This is my 
hypothesis, so take it or leave it. Sometimes in order to elevate what the word of God requires, a preacher will present the unvarnished truth in the clearest and most direct way without a bunch of caveats and exceptions. Because sometimes that preacher knows that their audience is looking for caveats and exceptions. They're they're running for the doors of caveats and exceptions, and so the preacher at times will say, I'm just going to present it in the most direct, plain way possible so that people cannot mess with it and excuse, make their excuses and justify themselves. And that's perhaps why Jesus does not list the exception here. He's just saying, this is what's going on. People are divorcing their wives. There's these unlawful reasons for doing so. They're getting remarried. They're committing adultery in the process. And the law of God is being flagrantly violated, flagrantly ignored by doing this. Now, it's true. Deuteronomy allowed divorce where there is sexual uncleanness. I do believe what Deuteronomy said and what Jesus says is in harmony with one another. But even there, Jesus says in Matthew 19 that divorce is due to the hardness of men's hearts. He says, from the beginning it was not so. Ideally, even where you have situations of sexual sin, there might be repentance and forgiveness and and a reconciliation that takes place. It doesn't always happen that way, and there is an exception given for such matters, and yet that would be even ideal. That would show even the softness of hearts on both sides where that could take place. The Genesis account had set forth marriage as a permanent union. God had not meant for these things to be separated at any time. But as men's hearts grow harder and harder, the exception clauses got bigger and bigger and bigger. That's what happens. You have hard hearts, more exceptions to breaking the law of God. And there you finally get such hard hearts that you get to Rabbi Akiba, who's saying that if you find a woman prettier, you can divorce your wife. That's a hard heart to the law of God. And so our our Lord then is bringing to bear a relevant rebuke for the people of his day. He is setting forth for them something they urgently needed to hear, they urgently needed to repent of. And, And in terms of John calling the people to repentance, here was a relevant place to repent. It wasn't the only place. But Jesus says, you know what something is that you need to repent of? This divorce practice that you have, it's breaking the law of God, it's separating families, it's destroying society, you need to repent of this. And so that is, I believe, why our Lord brought this to the attention of the Pharisees and is also relevant for us as we consider the condition of our hearts. So as we, as we bring things to an end this evening, brothers and sisters, I want to bring to you just two applications just to summarize what we've seen. First, let us be on guard against any mockery or dismissal of God's word. You might think, I would never mock God's word. That's not me. I'm a, I'm a Bible believer. I don't mock God's word. If that's your perspective, that's good. I hope that's your confession. But there are more subtle ways to mock and dismiss God's word. It's quite possible that someone in the body of Christ will deliver that word to you in the form of a specific application. And if that application is faithful and contains a right diagnosis of your heart as well as sound counsel, then you ought to receive it and not dismiss it. We have this phrase, if the shoe fits, wear it. So it is with many exhortations that we need to receive. If, if it fits, wear it, take it, receive it. Humble yourself in light of it. Rather than deriding 
what the word of God would say, what the word of God says to you. Secondly, let us give our attention to the condition of our hearts, not our appearances before others. As we have learned in our passage, it is possible to be highly esteemed by others all the while our hearts are disgusting in the sight of God. What matters most is not whether people think you are pure in heart, but whether you are pure in heart. What matters most is not whether people view you as generous, loving people, but whether we actually are generous and loving people. It's not that difficult to deceive people with an outward show of righteousness. And let's be honest, while we may grow in our discernment, our knowledge of others is still quite limited. And we can never look into men's hearts. But God knows your heart and he knows my heart. Nothing is hidden from the God who knows all things. And so let us give attention to this. Let us consider our hearts in light of the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ this evening. And as we do so, we may find those things that are ungodly. We may find those things that need cleansing by the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. And so then we can pray in light of that. Lord, cleanse me. Make me a fit vessel for your service. Cleanse my heart of covetousness. Cleanse cleanse my heart of lust. Cleanse my heart of selfishness. Whatever it is that, that is on your list, that is what you bring to the Lord in prayer. You confess it, and he promises to grant us his grace and renew us. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for these urgent words from our Lord Jesus Christ and how they speak to us. We ask that you would guard us against all scoffing and mockery of your word. Guard us against heart idols that may become entrenched in our hearts as it did with the Pharisees. We do not want this love of money or love of any other sin to stay entrenched. We ask that you would cleanse us. Keep us, Lord, from justifying ourselves before others, all the while our hearts are not cleansed. We ask that you would do a refining work in us so that the testimony of your word would help us understand our heart condition so that we could then humble ourselves in your sight, receive your forgiveness through Jesus Christ, and be renewed. And we pray this in the name of our Lord. Amen.